Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Sherilyn Connolly, the author of Ponyville Confidential, The History and Culture of My Little Pony, 1981 to 2016. Thanks for being here, Sherilyn. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start out with you just talking about what got you interested in writing this book and what how this book sort of came to be. Well, let's see here. The book came to be when I was sent an advanced copy of a book on a a very different pop culture item, uh, the movie Showgirls, Mm -hmm. that was being put out by a small press in Canada. And I found like that it was part of a new line that they were doing of pop culture books. So I thought, hey, I've been really enjoying Friendship is Magic. I am going to suggest a book on that. And for various reasons, that fell through, but I kept on the idea of, like, this is a book that needs to be written. This is a franchise that's been around for decades and has found new life, and nobody has really gotten into, you know, the history or cultural impact of it. Or at least they haven't gotten into the history and cultural impact of it from a respectful point of view. Everything that's been written about it in the last few years has always been LOL bronies before they actually, if they ever actually get into the substance of the show and the franchise. And so um, I eventually landed at McFarland, and this has been one of the most time-consuming and satisfying things I've ever done. I'm really happy with the book. (laughs) Well, it's really interesting because you don't think about My Little Pony being around for, like, over 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, so, yeah, you want to talk a little bit about that? It's a weird thing. It's it's in this weird kind of limbo right now where it's both often referred to as, especially during its revival in the 2000s, it was constantly being called 1980s retro, mm-hmm. that the revived popularity before Friendship is Magic was you know pure retro, pure nostalgia. And it's still often referred to as a 1980s toy, a revival of a 1980s toy. And then at the same time, When Friendship is Magic debuted in 2010, it was such a game changer in so many ways. The fact that My Little Pony has existed prior to October 9th, 2010, tends to get forgotten by people. Mm -hmm. The fact that there is this this whole history and that there were like three generations of it before now tends to get forgotten and... I think it's important to to respect that history and also to realize that the criticisms of the franchise are not new. That everything everything people are complaining about it now, they've complained about it in the past as well. Right. So you start the book off with giving us sort of this. So you break it down into those generations, right? Mm-hmm. And you start by giving this sort of early history. And well, one I have to tell you, thank you because I remember the whole My Pretty Pony. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? <laughs> old I'm, school. Right. Well, very old school. Right. I think I'm, I might be a year or two older than you are, but I think we're pretty close in age. Right. But mm-hmm. like, like I never realized like where that fit in. <laughs> right. Right. I was like, oh, well, this makes sense. Now I've got it. Mm-hmm. 
But you get yeah, this... no, it, it's been an evolution all along. Every what each phrase, each phase has evolved from the previous one. Right, and you talk in this about like sort of the history and the beginnings, and then how how there was some how the, like you said, there's always been this controversy over is this a toy, is this a television show, and how that sort of plays out in children's television in general. And so can you talk a little bit about that first chapter and what you were doing, or that first part one, then what you were doing in there? Well, I established something that I call My Little Pony's Original Sin, Mm -hmm. which is that the toys were introduced before the cartoons. The first, it's there's still there's some controversy or uncertainty as to exactly when the toys appeared, as to when My Pretty Pony turned into My Little Pony. Mm -hmm. But for sure, My Little Pony existed as a toy for at least a year before the first cartoon was made. And since then, all of the cartoons have always been just like knee jerk reflexively referred to as toy as as commercials for the toys. Mm-hmm. The cartoons themselves are never really allowed to stand on their own, and that's a that's a concept that I establish in the first section in Family Appreciation Day, and also showing that the way it's regarded compared to Transformers, there's very different standards at work. Mm-hmm. Transformers tends to get regarded, you know, taken taken on its own merits. Yes, it's based on a toy. It was much like My Little Pony. There were the toys before there were the cartoons, but the Transformers cartoons are treated with much more respect and much more allowed to stand on their own than the My Little Pony cartoons are. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of the people who've written about it have tended to be men who've been put off by the unapologetic femininity of the My Little Pony franchise. Right. Like, it seems like there's been a lot of criticism about My Little Pony even existing, right? And that that people don't want to really take it seriously at all, which you're really trying to challenge. Exactly. And a lot of the reason why they don't want to take it seriously or refuse to is because of the fact that it is directly geared towards young girls. And there is this very, very strong bias that it's breaking down a little. Things are improving somewhat, but there has long been this bias in the culture that things that are for boys are universal Mm -hmm. and that they can be held on to. They can continue to be appreciated as one ages. Whereas things that are marketed towards girls, marketed towards girls just as much as Transformers was marketed towards boys. But the things marketed towards girls, specifically My Little Pony, are only for girls. And also because of the fact that they are for young girls, they must be you know, inherently bad, inherently just a commercial and have no value on their own. Mm-hmm. And you sort of push at that in that first chapter, which I think is really interesting. And another thing you brought up in the first, or that first part, I guess I should say, is that I, um, it was really interesting to see the reaction in Britain, too. Mm-hmm. And so can you t- talk a little bit about, like, because you talk about the U.S., but you also talk about, well, in Britain, as well as towards the end of the book, you talk about in other countries, like, especially you mentioned, like, Mexico, Peru, that area. So can you talk a little bit about the sort of overseas reaction to My Little Pony and that sort of startup? Sure. Um, as near as I could tell from my research, it was as popular, My Little Pony was as popular in the UK as it was in the United States. 
though they did not they didn't get the cartoons i cannot find any reference to my little pony having existed in the 1980s in the uk in the cartoon form the series that most everyone remembers my little pony and friends it doesn't seem to have made it over there it was more a the toys were very popular and it became a sense of an aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It was most we like there are many references to like people's hair being like My Little Pony. That that one came up a lot. And also the UK press, just like the American press, whenever they needed an example of you know the, the dangers of unbridled femininity. Uh, no pun intended. No, no pun intended. As soon as I said that, I was like, "Oh, darn it!" It works. I, but and yet, I am apologizing for horse puns at this point. I really shouldn't be. <laughs> but yes, My Little Pony over there, as well as here, was always the go-to example for the dangers of commercialism and children's entertainment, and you know, the the worst of children's entertainment, particularly because it's for young girls and the cartoons are based on a toy. And I really felt like it got a bad rap in that respect. Yeah, like, what do you think? It seems like My Little Pony is getting a word, like, there's other cartoons for girls, right? And even during that time, right, it's Strawberry Shortcake. There's What is it about My, did you get a sense of what it is about My Little Pony that made everyone so, <laughs> to vilify it so much? Right. I have, I've, yeah, I've really, really wondered about that. I mean, I wonder, is it necessarily the inherent, you know, the, the inherent tweeness of the name of My Little Pony? And is that necessarily more so than like, you know, Rainbow Bright or Strawberry Shortcake or the Care Bears? And especially the Care Bears and My Little Pony got lumped together a lot going mm-hmm. forward. And what I keep coming back to is the way that the name My Little Pony brings the brings the viewer into it. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear My Little Pony and you immediately become, you become the person right. who owns the pony, which was very much a part of um, how it was marketed in the 80s and 90s. But I do think that that threw people off in a lot of way, even just having to say My Little Pony. You'll find most fans now, most of, a lot of bronies in particular, will prefer to just call it MLP. I mean, which is, you know, which is fine. It's 2017. We have to save bandwidth, I guess. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to fill up the internet with those extra letters. But that's actually one of the reasons why in the book, I made the conscious decision that every time I referred to My Little Pony, which is, of course, you know, several times every page, that I would spell it out. Right. You, know, not get, you would not get the easy out of just calling it MLP. Like when I'm talking about My Little Pony, it is going to be, I'm going to spell it out each time. I'm going to like own it that way. Mm-hmm. And another thing you, you mentioned or you start with in that first part and you get at a little in the others is some of the rules and regulations around um, children's television and commercials. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there was a... Uh, Oh, best way to put this, there hadn't really been any any cartoons that had been based on toys since 1969, since a show based on the Hot Wheels toys, which only lasted for a season and then got bumped because there were federal regulations against that sort of thing. And then in the early 1980s, you know, we got in a president who was not a fan of regulation at all. Oh, good thing history doesn't repeat itself, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And the rules regarding 
whether or not a show could be based on an existing product and how much of the how much how much of the commercial time had you know went to manufacturers those all those rules are basically like thrown up into the air and it now became possible for a cartoon to go on the air such as He-Man. He-Man is really the most important example because it's forgotten that He-Man was the first of those in the 80s. Mm-hmm. He-Man was the first of the early 1980s cartoons that were based on a toy and that were ex- not only explicitly based on a toy, but while the toy was being developed, they were also thinking in terms of, okay, now we need to get a cartoon going. And they were already approaching you know, networks and companies before the, before the uh, toys even hit the shelves. And it was He-Man that really led the way, and Transformers and G.I. Joe came after. And My Little Pony didn't even hit the airwaves until after those three shows had already been on. But going forward, it would be My Little Pony that would take the brunt of it. Whenever anyone would want, be talking about, you know, the evils of Saturday morning cartoons based on toys. And as I also go to detail elsewhere, My Little Pony was not a Saturday morning cartoon. Right. That's but, another but, thing that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Constantly, constantly, constantly. I didn't even include all the references I found <laughs> to it being called a Saturday morning cartoon because even I thought it got a little repetitive after mm-hmm. a while. <laughs> But it, yeah, it was by no means the first of the cartoons based on an existing toy line, but it became the handy go-to example going forward of that particular evil, if indeed you consider that to be an evil, as most did when it was involving feminine products. Mm-hmm. Exactly. No, I thought that was really interesting because, um, so when My Little Pony came out, I was probably, I was like nine, right? But I still remember mm-hmm. like He-Man, I still remember those cartoons coming out. And, but I didn't, but at that age, you don't think about that, right? You don't think no. about like, oh, these are actually selling a product. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this whole different thing. And I found that really interesting because so now, and you mentioned this too, we so often are just selling a product, right? Like even with Star Wars, you talk about later on in George Lucas sort of, wanting that merchandise and wanting to own that. And we don't think about it in that way that like sometimes things like you mentioned BB-8 coming out as a toy well before um, Mm -hmm. Star Wars, right? Before the reboot came out. Exactly. Yeah. BB-8 was like the big toy push. Everybody adored BB-8 before the movie, long before the movie came out. It was like the biggest toy to be selling. And again, this is all, these are all these toys based on a character that nobody has actually seen in the context of the film itself. But you know what? It's Star Wars. And for a lot of people, Star Wars can do no wrong. Mm Right, and it's interesting. I mean, I love Star Wars, but it's really interesting to think about that comparison, that My Little Pony, it's it's nothing new, right? It's nothing different, and yet there is this real um, frustration with what's happening, you know, that people are really up in arms that My Little Pony will come out with this huge collection of toys before they even appear. Right, yeah, and for that matter, when in the the, uh, mid-late 2000s, when the Hub Network was first introduced, the hub being joint venture between Hasbro and Discovery Communications to create a new network. When it was, of course, there was a lot of backlash about the fact that a toy company was getting involved in broadcasting. And My Little Pony was the first against the wall when that backlash began. 
even though Hasbro themselves, they were really pushing the fact that we have a new Transformers show coming on, and we're really super excited about that. And that's the flagship of this new network is this new ser- this new this like eighth or ninth TV series based on this toy. And we've already had like two of the big budget films that just came out, and we're really excited that there's this new venue for these particular cartoons. And then after that announcement, the next day, everyone was like, oh, my God, a new network that exists just to sell My Little Pony, to- my little pony co- Toys. We have to boycott this now. <laughs> so you and you move into so that sort of that lost generation. So that's part of that sort of lost generation that you talk about in part two, where uh, My Little Pony still existing, but it's sort of is it's not the My Little Pony that people either nostalgically remember or the one that we know now. So can you talk a little bit about that from like the 98 to 2010 My Little Pony? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the original wave of My Little Ponies, Generation One, as they're called, those went out of production in English speaking countries in 92. They did continue elsewhere throughout the rest of the decade, but my research abilities and my language skills did not really allow me to, you know, further pursue that. But in 98, 99, Hasbro did attempt to relaunch My Little Pony, what's now called Generation 2, and it just, it did not work at all. They just did not get the sales that they wanted, and within a year or so, they ceased production, and they swept it under the rug to such an extent that Hasbro wouldn't even talk about it anymore. (laughs) like in their in their big things to investors and their annual reports in like 99 2000 2001 they did not mention the fact that the my little pony revival had just crashed and burned they didn't talk about it at all and so it was successfully revived in 2002 2003 and it it was a big hit it was really really popular about 15 years ago and nobody remembers that now mm-hmm. it's kind of amazing to me like there were a number of movies that were made and a lot of straight to straight to video dvds and like you know hundreds of different ponies were put out and that's generation three and then generation what i call generation 3.1 and 3.5 they attempted to mix it up a little bit towards the late 2000s and again the the sales were starting to go down again and then when generation four hit in 2010 with friendship is magic Suddenly, generations three and two just just disappeared. They they were just no longer acknowledged anymore. Nobody remembered that they existed, and to the extent that a lot of a lot of fans, and from my research has shown, a lot of bronies in particular don't even want to talk about it. They get angry when you know generations one through three are brought up at all. So why do you, what do you think, why do you think that is? Like, what did you see that is behind that, this idea? Because you did, I was like, you know, I know the more recent films, right? Equestria Girls. But I was like, what is it about, why do we, why do we want to forget about those and that big sort of move in the early 2000s? Well, part of it really is a matter of quality. Mm -hmm. Generation four with Friendship is Magic and the Equestria Girl films are unquestionably just a zillion times better than everything that had come before. The toys themselves, eh, not, I'm not really personally a huge fan of the actual My Little Pony dolls that were coming out in 2010, 2011. Those first, those first waves, eh, not so great. But the animation and the character design and, as I try to point out in the book, the stories in the animation 
were light years beyond what the franchise had ever managed to do before. So there is a very good reason that Generation 4, that Friendship is Magic and Equestria Girls, gets all the attention now. I mean, A, they're still being made, and B, they're good. Mm-hmm. They're, like, really, really well done, and create, and they respect the intelligence of the, of the viewers, regardless of their age. It works for all ages, and it, it doesn't assume that young girls can't handle interesting stories or complex characters or scary stuff. And so it's the generation four very much deserves all the attention that it gets, but I, I, yeah, I haven't really quite figured out why generations one through three get so ignored now, except for the fact that again, they're not as good. They're not as well done. And I think that's also part of why many of the boys are, who are into it now, they consider friendship is magic and G4 to be acceptable to them in a way that the more overt, here's that word, the more overt girliness of the first three generations that did not allow. Right. Right. It's interesting. And then you, you sort of give us this, I appreciate it because there are so, even though I have two children in my house who love my little pony and I've watched it repeatedly, (laughs) I still get very lost. Right. Oh, sure. sure. And, 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 and again, like they're both younger, right? So they have sort of just, been introduced to this generation four, like that's the one they found. Mm-hmm. But um, I appreciated your because your part three is just sort of this reference guide. Yeah, just the episode guide for the <laughs> yes. first five seasons and the first three movies. Yeah, yeah, and that was really actually helpful because half, a lot of times, if I'm looking at something like this, I would be going to like Wikipedia to just look mm-hmm. at the episode guide. So it was nice to just have that in there to sort of say here's what was going on here's like what was happening in generations one to three and then here is like and your rating system right (laughs) my my completely definitive rating system yes (laughs) your grading of the shows right but here's what's happening so i appreciated that before you moved into um like your next part with um looking at these new uh the the last the generation four yeah, I actually had to like go back and forth with my publisher a little bit because that sort of thing, that sort of episode guide is usually usually gets shunted to the end uh, to the appendix rather. Mm-hmm. That's usually the kind of thing that gets put at the end and I argue that it is very important for the episode guide for Friendship is Magic and Equestria Girls to be right there in the middle of the book right when the shows and movies themselves begin because a people are going to need to know that it's there to refer back to when I mentioned various episodes, so they can at least look back and say, oh, such and such happens in that one. And also on a more philosophical level, the way that the episode guide disrupts the uh, narrative flow of the book is very analogous to the way Friendship is Magic disrupted the flow, the historical flow of My Little Pony. It's like suddenly this huge monolith lands and everything has changed. Right. Well, yeah. So I like I liked it. (laughs) So you can just tell your publishers that I liked it. Uh, All but, right. Score one. <laughs> yeah, score one. Right. But I really did appreciate it because I'm like the, like I said, like these are all the, sh- there are so many, just even asking my son, he's like, he, and he'll remember them, you know, if we start mm-hmm. to talk about them, but he's like, there are so many of them. There are, you know, and he will be right. like, even remembering was this season one or season two and where did this happen? So I thought that was really helpful. So, so let's talk a bit about, 
this the friendship is magic, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so in part four, you get into you bring us into the newer the newest um, uh, friendship. You bring us into friendship is magic and start thinking about that. So can we talk? Can you talk a little bit about how this sort of reboot existed and what it was about this that really got people excited? And then we'll talk about bronies since that's in that part as well. That does come. That does come up as well. Yes. yes. But, but let's start with what, like, what it is about because it's not only the bro, right? Brodies get a lot of press, but there's another reason. I mean, the girl, like, young girls are watching this. Other people are watching it as well. That's making it mm-hmm. popular. So, what is it about? Like, what are you sort of talking about in part four? For me, what really works about friendship is magic is the writing. Mm-hmm. It all boils down to the writing. I mean, the the animation and the character designs are gorgeous, but, you know, prettiness without substance gets pretty boring pretty fast. So the fact that creator Lauren Faust and her writers and producers created this very well-developed world full of characters who, though they had, you know, defining character traits, were all very complex and reacted differently to different situations. And it was a flexible enough world to where you could just, you know, you could have like all of the main characters in an episode or just focus uh, on three of them over the course of a night. And as I talk about in the book, that's the, that was the episode that like really sold me. It's like an early episode called Look Before You Sleep. That's just three characters, Twilight Sparkle, Rarity, and Applejack, you know, having a slumber party in Rarity, in Twilight's home, over the course of a storm and the animosity between Applejack and Rarity, which is a boiling point. And it's just this great, intense character piece, which is unthinkable, really, mm-hmm. for any of the previous iterations of My Little Pony. And I'd been enjoying the show up to that point, but that was when it really struck me. It's like, wow, this is does not matter what the history of it is. I mean, I'm a fan of the history, but whether it was called My Little Pony or not, this is a very well-done show. Again, it's both lovely looking, but it's also very rich in terms of characters and story. And again, that changes everything. There'd never been a My Little Pony animation before that was like that. Right. So I want to talk about um, Lauren Faust a little, because I think, like, do you feel like she she is very important to this um, sort of resurgence of this? Oh, or... very, very much so. Yes. So what is it about what she was doing um, and her in this industry that made this like that sort of helped guide this um, this resurgence of My Little Pony? Well, as she's as she's talked about before, the development of Friendship is Magic was based on her initial reaction to uh, My Little Pony and Friends in the 80s. She did not like that series at all. She didn't like the characters. She didn't like the lack of good stories. And she instead created her own universe with her dolls. Mm-hmm. She like pretty much you know ignored what was happening on the show and created her own universe, the land of Equestria and characters of Celestria and Twilight Sparkle and all of them. And when she was approached to do a My Little Pony cartoon, she went back to that world that she created, that that she made out of her own imagination when she was a child. And the fact that she, yeah, so I think what's, yeah, one of the things that really works about it is that it's based on what a very smart mm-hmm. young girl wanted to see. 
And as it turns out, basing something on what a very smart, thoughtful young girl wants to see can be universal as well. Right. And, and it's and what what she wants to see, and not what someone who has never been a young girl or doesn't, more importantly, <laughs> does not interact with young girls thinks they want they want to see. She respects their intelligence in a way that really no previous producers of My Little Pony or most any other female oriented animation had done. Right, and you mentioned you talk about this a lot, and. and... Because I've viewed My Little Pony numerous times, like I, that's one thing that I have appreciated about My Little Pony, right? That that it mm-hmm. isn't, it isn't like pandering. It, it's sort of pushing my children to think about things. Like my son was, even though he loves Rainbow Dash, he was talking about how all the, the complexity of Pinkie Pie, right? Pinkie Pie has mm-hmm. these powers. Pinkie Pie can also, you know, do, what was he saying? Like, she has certain powers she can do. She's able to get people together, even though she's sort of hyper. That's okay. But, you know, she's really cool and all these, like, you know, all these different elements to her. And, like, I'm, like, like that's that's refreshing to me as a parent to have my children watching a show that has that much complexity. Because a lot of times those characters are sort of just one-dimensional. Exactly, yeah. And Pinkie Pie is not personally my favorite character. I mean, I get a lot of people love her, and she's not my favorite, but I, I really do appreciate the complexity of her. And there's a late season, late late first episode season, that's one of my favorites, called Party of One, which really goes deep into her brain. Because when she believes that her friends are tired of her and don't want to be around her anymore, she basically has a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. It's like her entire world collapses around her. And, you know, she eventually discovers that she was wrong, that, you know, her friends do still love her. But it, it really got deep into her, into her psychology in a way that past iterations of the show would never have been able to do before. And similarly, with uh, my favorite character, Rarity, who I (laughs) describe as the best on more than one occasion in the book, one of the things I really admire about the way that she is written, and this goes back to the issue of overt femininity, is that she is unapologetically feminine, Mm -hmm. but that makes her no less strong than any of the other characters, makes her no less strong than the, you know, tomboys like Rainbow Dash or Applejack, like she can be, she's kidnapped in the episode uh, "Last Dog and Sorry, uh, a Dog and Pony Show," and she is able to get out, rescue herself, all while her friends and the one boy in the main cast, Spike, are trying to rescue her. They fail, and she is able to rescue herself using her using I want to say her wiles, but using her wits. Mm-hmm. She's able to talk her way out of the situation and figure out what her captors' weaknesses are and exploit that. And to me, that is such like an incredibly important, powerful message that you can both be, you know, girly and strong at the same time, that they are not, you know, diametrically opposed. Right, exactly. Um, So, and this is another thing that you talk about a bit in your book. Um, We've been talking about sort of rarity, Applejack, right? We've got these main six, right? So in Friendship is Magic, they come up with, their sort of main six ponies, and and it seems that there was there was also a um, a progression to get to these six as sort of these main characters. So, can you talk a little bit about that and that history of getting to because these have not always been the main 
six characters in My Little Pony. So how do we get to these six? Right, and, and indeed the very notion of of there being specific ponies, a specific handful of strong character ponies that represent the wider Milo Pony world, that is a new thing that hadn't really happened before. And it's very it's it's very much a numbers game with Hasbro and Milo Pony. They do try to put out, you know, as many different toys and as many different ponies as they can, but within the context of the show and the, the emphasis on the, on the characters, on the to- characters, the toys are indeed those, those main six, Twilight Sparkle, Rarity, Applejack, Rainbow Dash, and uh, Pinkie Pie. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I forgot her for a moment there. <laughs> and this, as near as I could tell, this evolved from Hasbro attempting in the mid two thousands to finally actually bring specific character and story as strong points of the franchise. And indeed, their first attempt at that was in Generation 3.1 in 2007, when they announced that they were going to be focusing on what they referred to as a core seven of ponies. Mm-hmm. And so rather than, there were still going to be hundreds of them, but they were going to focus on these particular seven and you know try to make the stories mostly about them, try to make them the characters that the consumer most identify with. And so they did that for generation, what again, what I call generation 3.1 and again with generation 3.5. And it wasn't until generation four that it really clicked. Mm -hmm. And I should mention that generation four is very much, there's been no continuity in my little pony up until this point. Okay. It's like, even within the original series, it mostly took place in the same universe, but there wasn't the sense of like, I have my favorite characters or, oh, this is going to be a so-and-so episode. Those are my mm-hmm. favorites. You didn't really get that with either the original series or the very forgotten Milo Pony Tales series in 1992 or in the made-for-DVD made for movies in the 2000s. But with the main six, the evolution, who evolved from the core seven, yeah, it was Hasbro very much, and Lauren Faust very much attempting to focus on these characters. And it was not their first time trying to do it, but it was their first time being successful at it. It was the first time that after having promised that, yes, story and character matter now, My Little Pony. It was the, it was, <laughs> they tried before, and they were noble failures. And it, wasn't, it was not until now, until Friendship is Magic, that it really worked. Right. And it's really fascinating, right? Because they all also have... Um... Because so it, it seems like Faust and her world building was really important in making sure that these characters also work. Yes. Yeah, that's a big thing that I think tends to get ignored is the fact that the characters, at least of the main six, are not are not children the way they were in the previous cartoons. They're young, but I tend to parse them as being about college age. Mm-hmm. None of them are necessary. Well, only Twilight Sparkle is still in school at this point, and she's doing distance studies now that she's moved to Ponyville. <laughs> but they all have actual like responsibilities and duties. And the fear, the fear of losing the family farm is a recurring theme for the Applejack episodes. Mm-hmm. And Rarity, you know, again, the most overtly feminine of the characters has a is a is a very is she's very creative and she's also a businesswoman. So in addition to inhabiting what many people can consider to be 
the more you know destructive feminine stereotypes she's also again a businesswoman and a creator and she works very very hard arguably harder than any of the others and again that had not really been seen in my little pony before right which is really fascinating right and and that it can sort of play out with these with you know young children who are watching it who can sort of see these roles and see these characters taking on responsibilities exactly yeah so so let's get to the bronies because we have to talk about bronies. Of course. <laughs> right. But what I appreciated what you did with the bronies is also sort of give us a history of even the term brony, right? Mm-hmm. And how this term has been um, used in different ways. So, and, and then sort of how the bronies have have sort of pushed on and, and complicated um, this this uh, My Little Pony space. So can you talk a little bit about the bronies and what you learned about the bronies and the history of the bronies? Oh, golly. It's, <laughs> it's in a weird way, it's almost a bigger subject than the history of My Little Pony. Right. Yeah. Um, as I try to argue in the book, the mere existence of of bronies as an organized fandom who self-organize with with a name the media once the media realized that they existed mm-hmm. it's like for those for the for like the first year or so of my little pony friendship is magic being or for six months rather of it being on the air most of the media attention had been about like Oh God, another My Little Pony show that just exists to sell toys to our children and let's try to assess all the damage it's doing. Right. And then and then they discovered that, oh, there's this group of fans. We're not sure how many of them there are exactly, but there's definitely this group of fans who who call themselves bronies and who tend to be, but are not always necessarily, adult and or male. And that became the huge media obsession going forward. And it had the effect of taking the focus away from the show. The question that, the question that it always boiled down to for much of the media was, you know, not what is it about this show that attracts such a diverse fan base, but rather what's wrong with these grown men that they're watching a show for little girls. And they, the media would frequently go out of their way to make fun of them and gender shame them and do everything possible to suggest that, you know, that bronies, because they're men who like this show about this show for, for little girls about ponies, there must be something weird about them. Are they gay? Are they deviants? Is this like hiding some deeper sickness? What is wrong with them? We cannot figure it out. It became this unfathomable mystery that was too mysterious even to fathom and they didn't which is why they didn't even try most of them would not even watch the show mm-hmm. they wouldn't take that extra step saying well okay clearly they're a big fan of this show so maybe if we were to watch the show oh no no not an option we, whatever the show the show is just a it's just a dumb show for little girls so never mind what it's about let's just figure out what is wrong with these people that they're watching this show, that they are breaking this inviolable taboo that things that are for little girls should only be watched and only be experienced and only be acknowledged by little girls. And as I argue in the book, this kind of thing has the tendency to spill out into the wider culture. And as I point out, in the, in the month of April 2014, there were 
multiple ex- multiple examples of the media going, oh my God, bronies are so weird. There's this documentary that's coming out about them and it is the strangest thing you've ever seen. Can you wrap your brain around this? Boys are watching a show for little girls. Have you ever heard of anything weirder? And all of this was coming, and this had been going on for years at this point. And these particular instances came like right after there'd been two high profile news cases of mm-hmm. young boys getting bullied and or beat up yep. for liking My Little Pony. For, and for more importantly, not being ashamed of liking My Little Pony. There was one boy who committed suicide because he was getting so much shit. He was getting like bullied and harassed so much for the sin of liking Pinkie Pie. Right. No, and I remember all of, and I have to say, so my son is 11. He has, mm-hmm. He's the one who sort of introduced us all to My Little Pony when he was about six or seven. And Excellent. Still loves it, right? Still absolutely loves it. And I remember very vividly hearing all of those because, you know, at least we we are living in a town that has been very open to that, right? People are, like, he'll go play Pokemon with his Rainbow Dash card holders and everybody's like, that's cool. Um, but but that idea of, like, what happens when your child says they like a show that other people don't think they should like. Mm-hmm. And, and, right, like, and that's, that, and it's really interesting what you're talking about because that idea of, like, Boys can't like this, but girls can like Star Wars. Girls can like Transformers, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, whatever it might be, and that's okay. Right, exactly. It does not go in both directions. Things that are made for boys are ultimately universal. Things that are made for girls are just for girls. And anyone who is not a girl who likes them well, there's clearly something wrong with that person. So let's try to figure it out. Let's try to figure it out. Let's try to like drill down into their psychology and figure out what damage caused them to like this show. And it's just, it's just, oh, it's so frustrating. So deeply frustrating. No, it is. And it's like, and I understand. And, and you talk about this a bit in that fifth chapter about the bronies getting really frustrated. You know, there's some drama with uh, a number of like bronies who are not happy about the gray mayor. Um, mm-hmm. Right. And we talk a little bit about that, but you know, so there is a little bit of pushback or the bronies fighting against the soccer moms who are existent or non-existent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the phantom soccer moms. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but so can you talk a little bit about sort of, so, so your last sort of part gets into this, um, thinking about the brand and thinking about who these ponies are, and then we can talk about the um, the films that there's some mm-hmm. drama about. Yeah. <laughs> but what, like, could you talk a little bit about that sort of um, how this subculture, how this this group have um, been very vocal about what they want to see and don't want to see in the My Little Pony world? Yes, and as I try to point out in the book. It's basically it's fan entitlement that you will find in any other fan group. Mm-hmm. It's like the only the only real difference here is that it is primarily, though not exclusively, boys. And again, there, there's this. I actually had to. It's something else I had to go back and forth with my publisher about, which was that on for the blurb of the book, they wanted to specifically refer to bronies as adult male fans. Mm -hmm. And I really had to put the kibosh on that. I was like, no, 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 that's not what the book, the book argues, not the opposite exactly, but the book makes it very clear that 
not a not all fans of the show are bronies and not all of those who do identify as bronies are necessarily like adult or male mm-hmm. and that it's really important to show the true diversity in the wider fan base and within bronies as well it is not all just you know older men right but anyway as i tried to explain as i tried to try to demonstrate in the book the anger from the bronies about the introduction and then change of uh, of the gray mirror of the character of muffins who right. they call derpy and super briefly it was an animation an animation glitch in the very first episode in which a gray background pony's eyes were misaligned and the uh, internet fans were already examining every frame of the show they picked up on that particular character declared that her eyes we're like a internet meme called Derp, mm-hmm. which involves a, photoshopping a person's eyes to go in different directions. And they declared the character's name to be Derpy and started just putting out just, you know, gigabytes of fan art and fan fiction around her. And it got back to the producers who, about halfway through the first season, decided to start re-misaligning re- re- the character's eyes. It had initially only been in the first episode, then around episode 14 or 15, the misalignment appeared again, and it was directly a sh- it was, it was a, a, a shout-out to the fans, and a shout-out to the bronies in particular. Mm-hmm. And so as the character continued to appear for the rest of the season, her eyes were, you know, derped out the way the bronies liked it. Then about halfway through the second season, the character finally spoke and was referred to by Rainbow Dash as Derpy which again was what the fans had named her. And, you know, they were very pleased with themselves, shall we say. <laughs> the, the bronies were a little, little bit proud of like having, you know, having that feedback loop happening with the producers of having this impact on the show that they liked. And then the controversy beca- began that the word derpy is actually a little bit on the offensive side. Mm-hmm. That actually refers to online mostly to people, you know, with uh, with mental disorders. And Hasbro decided to, after lots of deliberation and lots of lots of uh, lots of backlash, to change the character's name. And the Bronies got very, very, very angry about that. They took it deeply personally, like they'd been given this gift that had been like yanked back away from them. And of course, as always happens in these cases, they went looking for people to blame. Mm -hmm. And in addition to blaming the, you know, the straw men known as the soccer moms, (laughs) just someone at one point or another just brought up soccer moms. Ah, it was the soccer moms who did this. Yes. The overly PC trolls known as soccer moms are responsible for this. And they also turned on, you know, what few people in the fandom had, expressed concerns about the character before there were people who were involved in the brony fandom who did not like the character or did not like that her name was derpy because they felt that it was very ableist and making fun of people who are you know mentally disabled or have mental illness issues and yeah it just became a huge battle within the brony community and one that to an, one that to an extent still rages on to this day because the character still appears, but she is uh, officially no longer referred to as Derpy. Her name is indeed Muffins. 
in both Friendship is Magic and Equestria Girls. And for a lot of the bronies, they do not accept that. They are still very angry about it. It's like, it's not what they wanted. And this show started to give them what they want, and the show changed its mind. And they are very angry that <clears throat> the show's not doing what we wanted to do. We're the fans. Ergo, we're the fans, and we can talk to the producers. Ergo, what we want, especially if we're the quote-unquote majority, then the show should be what we want it to be. And that's a fan entitlement that has existed for decades at this point. The fact that it's about My Little Pony to me is neither here nor there. It's just this is just how fans tend to tend to be when they get the slightest bit of uh, influence over the things they love. Right. And you sort of bring up the point that this is probably a very small, like even though they get a lot of media attention, the group of bronies is probably a, a small subset of the larger fandom. Right. Yeah, it, it would have to be. It would, mathematically, it would absolutely right, yes. have to be. <laughs> yes, you sort of figure that out, which makes the. But they do, right? But they're, you know, if they are, if a, many of them have more access to the computer, right? If we have, my, you know, my children are not posting what they want their ponies to be like on the, you know, internet. So, mm-hmm. so then you get it. So you sort of end with the the movies that come out that have also sort of caused you love them. Um, I am a big fan of the Equestria Girls films, yes. My children both love them. Um, But you you bring up, like, that has become problematic, um, part of which is because the ponies are not ponies anymore. So can you talk a little bit about the films and and sort of the impetus for them and sort of the controversy around them? Well, the controversy around them actually goes back to the way you phrased it just now, which is that the ponies are not ponies anymore, which is not strictly true. Mm-hmm. Specifically in the Equestria Girls films, they take place in an alternate universe where there are human counterparts to the pony characters. And so when you're watching one of the Equestria Girls films, you're not seeing the ponies from Friendship is Magic turned into humans. You're seeing parallel versions of them in a different universe except for Twilight Sparkle in the first two films, who goes back and forth between them, and the character of Sunset Shimmer, who's one of my favorite characters in the entire franchise, who started out as a villain in the first film Mm -hmm. and was redeemed over the course of the next few. And so it's like, yeah, a lot of people were very upset that, you know, it was the further, they saw it as a further sexualization of the franchise and of taking taking something innocent i.e. the ponies, and turning them into, you know, teenage vixens, like in the Monster High or Bratz series. Those were the two big comparisons that got brought up most when Equestria Girls was first announced. And as I argue in the book, it's not fair at all. It really, really isn't. It's like the ponies do not become humans. Twilight Sparkle the pony still exists, and there's also Twilight Sparkle the human, and occasionally they interact but usually they don't. And it's these two separate universes where two different kinds of stories can be told. And as far as I'm concerned, in the Equestria Girls films, especially Rainbow Rocks and Friendship Friendship Games, they're actually able to tell slightly more mature stories than Friendship is Magic does. And that's among the reasons that I'm a big fan of the Equestria Girls films. But for a lot of the bronies, a lot of the bronies and civilians alike, just saw it right off the bat as, oh my God, the ponies are being turned into humans, are being turned into teenage girls. This has officially ruined everything. You know, there were death <laughs> threats. There were death threats and rumors of death threats sent 
to the animators. And a lot of them basically flat out said, a lot of the uh, Angry Bronies flat out said that, you know, we don't, we liked the show before it was girl or we liked it because it wasn't girly. And now because the ponies are, have turned into, you know, human girls, well, they're not ponies anymore. And now it's girly and now we can't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, a lot, there was a big backlash about it and a big sense of, hey, wait a minute, we didn't want this. Why is this happening? We did not ask for this. Yeah, I've been informed, though, that the music in Rainbow Rocks is absolutely wonderful. Oh, sure, it is, yeah. Right, and isn't in one of these, doesn't somebody get married? Is it in the, or is that in... Uh, yeah, there are there are a couple of there are a couple of marriages not in the Equestria Girls movies, but in Friendship Is Magic, right? Twilight's brother Shining Armor and That's Princess it. Cadence get married in Candlelight Wedding Part Two, and um, the characters of Cranky Doodle Donkey and Matilda get married in my least favorite episode of Friendship <laughs> Is Magic, Slice of Life. Which yeah. is I've only seen I've only seen the episode twice and unlike the rest of them I don't think I'll ever be able to watch it again. It's just like it's like fire ants being poured on my body. It's just <laughs> so deeply irritating to me. You can't do it. I really can't. <laughs> Which is fine. So so what um so you so you sort of talk about these films and then you talk a little bit about like you end with sort of how these these films and how My Little Pony is sort of also playing out in some other countries as well. And so can you talk a little bit about sort of your ending, your conclusion and, and what you were seeing in in countries outside of the United States with My Little Pony? Sure. Um, for, for certain, My Little Pony overall and Equestria Girls in particular is very popular in Latin America. There are at least two, and there's possibly more, but two different stage shows that I'm aware of happening in Latin America. There's one touring Mexico right now called uh, My Little Pony y Equestria Girls El Show in Vivo, which is basically, yeah, it's basically the first two Equestria Girls movies mashed together and become a stage show. And I have not yet seen it because it's traveling in Mexico, but I've watched all the, all the, all the bootleg videos that have been put online and yeah, it's fantastic stuff. I hope someday to actually get to see it for reals. And also in Peru, there's a uh, different organization that does like live Equestria Girls shows for, you know, for, for parties and, you know, birthday parties and the like. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is very, and the Equestria Girls movie in particular, yeah, did really well. It seemed to almost do better in Latin America than it did in the United States. It, like really touched a nerve there. Mm-hmm. And I like I like that. I like the fact that it has that international appeal. Right. No, it's really interesting. And, and I think it gets at sort of what you were talking about as sort of there's something about this show that has some kind of universality to it. Right. There is some staying power with it. Mm-hmm. So so what are your um, do you I know this book is just coming out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, do you have uh, sort of a next like so ideas for something next or sort of what are your next plans anything with my little pony or well at the moment i am currently uh deep in the research which is always the funnest part i enjoyed right. the research of ponyville confidential so much i could just spend hours in databases i greatly enjoy that kind of thing and right now i am 
I'm uh, researching my next book, which has nothing whatsoever to do with My Little Pony. It's actually a history of the evolution of screen credits in Hollywood films. Mm. It's like how we got to the, how we got from where, like, you know, Gone with the Wind, a thousand people worked on it and only a hundred people got credited to modern Marvel movies where 10,000 people work on them and every single one of them gets credited. <laughs> so I'm like trying to find, trying to find a thread there. It's like, how, and I, I think it's good. I, I am, I think everyone who works on a film should get credited. So to, uh, it's, to me, it's really fascinating to find out like how we got to this point. Mm-hmm. So there's that that I'm working on right now. And um, as I kind of hint at in the introduction to Ponyville Confidential, Ponyville Confidential itself is not a detailed production history of Friendship is Magic or Equestria Girls, but I would love to write that book. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping, and I have a couple contacts within the uh, production staff of the show, so I might a little bit later on, like you know, start putting out some feelers and maybe see if I can get that book happening. Right. <laughs> Well, we've been talking for a while, so I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about the book or My Little Pony. Uh, all I'll say is you do not have to. You do not have to have been a My Little Pony fan to enjoy the book. If you just like pop culture history, or are curious about seeing a history of, you know, sexism and misogyny in in United States culture filtered through a particular disreputable children's franchise, then Ponyville Confidential is for you. No, and I agree. It was like, like I said, it was really interesting for me to read, like, sort of how this plays out with, like, why is it My Little Pony versus, like, there's so many, right, we could have looked at Transformers, you could have looked mm-hmm. at Star Wars, you could have looked at all of these, and that My Little Pony, conti- and it still sort of continues today, to, so you, you never know when you say My Little Pony how people are going to react. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And something I would like to point out regarding the, you know, the diversity of the fan base and to an extent about the bronies is, or more specifically about like adult fans, Mm -hmm. is that uh, my day job is as a librarian and specifically as a children's librarian. And usually I'll have some kind of pony accoutrement on at some point or another. Right. It's like, you know, the, the shirt I'm, I'll often like, you know, be wearing a top that has like sunset shimmers, cutie mark, you know, right. things like that. And I also do a program called TV club once a month where we watch an episode and discuss it just like a book club. Right. And something I've noticed is that, you know, usually like, you know, when an eight year old girl will pick up on like, you know, what it is I'm wearing, she'll be like, you like My Little Pony too? They're like amazed and pleased to discover it's like, oh, here's this grown up woman who also likes this thing that I like. No, it's just, I had the book the other day and my daughter was with me and her friend, my daughter's like, my mom's reading Ponyville Confidential. And her friend was like, do you like My Little Pony? And I'm like, I sort of can't be in my house without knowing anything about my little pony. Right, I play right. my little pony Monopoly, you know. <laughs> my daughter's my daughter has on her like rainbow dash sweatshirt, the little hooded sweatshirt with the little pony mane in the back, which is super cute. Nice, but, nice. But yeah, no, but I agree. I think there is this sort of connection. And I did appreciate, like I said, I appreciated that this sort of gave this sort of richer history to my little pony than like because we do think about it as this sort of um, friendship is magic. This is what it is. But it's been, a, you know, there's some staying power. There's there. It's been around for a bit. 
It's been around, and from the moment it was introduced, it's never been out of the public consciousness and never been out of the dialogue. Right. All throughout the 90s, when it wasn't being produced, people were still bringing it up. It was still being treated like, you know, a trauma that we collectively hadn't gotten past yet. Right. You know, it's amazing how often people say things like, well, you know, like 1995, well, you know, people are so sick of My Little Pony. It's like, dude, no one's seen My Little, there hasn't been any My Little Pony to be sick of in years. <laughs> but it's like, if you're an, it's like if you were an animator in the 90s and you wanted to seem edgy, then you would diss My Little Pony. That would show how hardcore you were. <laughs> I know that My Little Pony and it's horrible. Exactly. <laughs> but it's not. It's actually wonderful. It, really, Yeah. <laughs> Well, Sherilyn, thank you so much for talking to me again. My pleasure. This was Sherilyn Connolly, the author of Ponyville Confidential, The History and Culture of My Little Pony, 1981 to 2016.